Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. Today, we are bringing you part two of our ID Week 2022 recap episodes. And so if you missed our episode last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to that one before diving into this episode. It features our amazing Breakpoint Breakpoints hosts talking about the pipeline antibacterial agents that were presented at ID Week 2022. So six compounds in the pipeline that are really intriguing and really interesting to listen and learn about. And then we also discussed all of the late breaker clinical trials that were presented at ID Week 22. So six clinical trials with late breaking data, some new antibiotics we think we're going to get out of those trials and just really, really cool stuff. And so if you missed that episode, again, we encourage you to go back and listen. Today, we're going to finish out the ID Week recap by talking about the session that was called Papers That Should Change Your Practice, which really looked at anything published from October of 2021 through October of 2022. That session is broken into antibacterials, antivirals, and antifungals, and we will go through all of those today. And then finally, we're going to close with our I Feel Nerdy segment, which has become a favorite of the podcast, where the hosts or the panelists get to talk about their favorite things that they love to nerd out to. And for today's session, we are going to talk about those things at ID Week, or just things in infectious diseases in general, that maybe flew under your radar, maybe were new things that we learned recently that we really just are very excited about and wanted to share with the audience. And so no further ado, I am joined again today by none other than the other three Breakpoints hosts, Dr. Julie Ann Justo, Rachel Britt, and Jillian Hayes. These women need no introduction. You've heard them on this podcast before. They're brilliant, they're graceful, and it is my honor to work with them to host this podcast that we've come to know and love. But I will give them brief introductions and then we'll get started with today's episode. So Dr. Julianne Justo is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and Outcome Science at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy. She also maintains a practice site there and she runs the PGY2 ID Fellowship Program, apologies, it's the ID Fellowship Program, not the residency program um, at USC. So Julie is just really, really an exceptional pharmacist and an exceptional person. Dr. Rachel Britt is a pharmacy clinical practice specialist in infectious diseases at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. Rachel has just cycled off her term as the Publications and Podcast Committee leadership team, um, and she's just done really amazing work for this group over the last couple of years, and we're so thankful to have Rachel with us today. And then finally, Dr. Jillian Hayes is an infectious diseases antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and Jillian is coming on to her term as chair of the Publications and Podcast Committee. We're so excited about all of the amazing things that we know Jillian is going to do. And so now with no further ado, let's dive into that session of publications that will change your practice. And our very own Julie Ann Justo was able to give this talk at ID Week, which is a huge honor. She did a fantastic job. If you have your ID Week subscription, even if you're listening to this podcast, we encourage you to go watch that session and hear all three speakers walk through these trials. They did just really, really nice work. But Julie, we are lucky enough to have you here today. We're so proud of you. Can you give us the summary version of your talk and teach us about the antibacterial trials that will change our practice that have been published 
in the last year. Oh my gosh, our our listeners cannot see me, but I'm like uh, beet red, my my cheeks are burning. Um, yeah, this was one of those moments where like I experienced imposter syndrome in my career. I got the invitation and I was like, that session? Oh Lord. But they tell you, do the things that you're afraid of or have anxiety about. That means they're worth doing, right? So I actually did have a lot of fun um, doing this session. I will try to go briefly through and hopefully just convince you to go and watch it if you haven't already. I will say this though, it was one of the toughest talks I've put together. I didn't realize, normally if you're like, okay, what are the top like four trials in the last year? They normally roll off the top of, you know, the tongue and you're like, oh yeah, this one and this one and this one. Everybody did a journal club on it. That was really hard this past year. I feel like everybody was so focused on COVID. Oh my gosh, I had to really dig to find these papers, but I did find some good ones. So there's a couple uh, and I broke them down into kind of category of how they would change my practice. The first one was antimicrobial selection. And for that, I picked the GRACE VAP trial. So in brief, this study evaluated the outcomes of a VAP antimicrobial selection strategy that was based on gram-stain-guided restrictive antibiotic therapy. So looking at the gram-stain, seeing what was there, and, you know, targeting your antibiotics to that, or standard of care, which was, you know, IDSA, ATS, VAP guideline-based broad-spectrum antibiotic therapy of anti-MRSA and anti-pseudomonal therapy, a la vancpeptazo or vanccefepime, whatever uh, you're like. So the intervention was they would look at these patients with VAP, and if, for example, the gram stain uh, from endotracheal aspirates, okay, endotracheal aspirates, demonstrated gram-positive coxine chains or gram-positive rods, as an example, they would de-escalate from your vancpeptazo down to a non-pseudomonal beta-lactam antibiotic, um, a la ceftriaxone, something like that. So they compared these two strategies and they basically found uh, no difference in major outcomes. Um, this can change your practice if you're a center that really does a lot of vanc uh, and piptazo or vanc and cefepime until cultures grow back. Um, then this would be something for, for you to consider. I think there's some important caveats in here. I, I do want you guys to watch this before you even try to implement this as a stewardship initiative because um, they had a very specific type of antibiogram that Japanese ICU antibiogram across these like 11 centers that they had matched kind of what I have going on in South Carolina in the U.S., but it might not match some other centers uh, that our listeners are practicing in. So go check at that and make sure that your antisynomonal and so on uh, susceptibilities are similar. And then the other thing is it only had 4% of patients with septic shock. So this whole uh, gram stain uh, guided approach to selection probably is not generalizable to those patients at the very far end of severity of illness. We just don't, these data aren't representative of those folks. So keep that in mind. All right. So now I'm going to shift to the second uh, topic, which was medical management. And for this one, weirdly enough, I thought it was a good idea to put in a meta-analysis and I was waiting for like the commentary from the peanut gallery, but I did that anyway. We're looking at follow-up blood cultures on mortality um, in patients with uh, gram-negative bloodstream infection. And so in brief, they looked at two key questions. The first one is they scoured all the literature to see any uh, studies that would answer the question, are the obtainment of follow-up blood cultures associated with decreased mortality in patients with gram-negative BSI? And they did find, uh, when they did the meta-analysis, a significantly decreased mortality with the obtainment of follow-up blood cultures versus no follow-up blood cultures with a hazard ratio of 0.56. So the magnitude was impressive, but what was more impressive, and I show this in the trial, like, uh, excuse me, in the presentation, there was a consistency 
in the point estimate of hazard ratios across the five high quality observational cohort studies that they included. The second key question, which is less impressive, but I had to include it for completeness, whether positive follow-up blood cultures were associated with increased mortality versus negative follow-up blood cultures. Short story, there's less conclusive uh, information here because of the poor quality of data. If you want to see the details for why I call it poor quality, go watch the session. Next, we're going to flip to dosing. Um, and this one was, uh, there's two trials here, the first one being the Sabato trial. So the big caveat here that I'll say about the Sabato trial is that we haven't yet seen the fully published version of this trial, but it's already gotten significant play uh, across the conference and podcast circuit. So it was presented initially at ECMID in April of 2022. And long story short, it looks at uh, management of low risk staph aureus bloodstream infection. I made the joke. I, I don't make jokes at all. I'm not a comedian, but I did get a laugh when I was saying that low risk staph aureus bacteremia is a unicorn. Um, I think that hit a nerve in, in the audience. But regardless, they looked at low risk staph aureus uh, bacteremia, and everybody got five to seven days of IV antibiotics. And then they randomized patients to either remain on the standard IV therapy through 14 days or to switch and finish the course with an oral antibiotic, primarily trim sulfa, one DS tab by mouth twice a day. So I gave you the full regimen because I got questions about it. Um, so they looked at that, compared the oral switch versus maintaining on IVs. All clinical outcomes were comparable, except they had decreased uh, hospital length of stay in the group that had the oral switch, and that was by a median of about four days. So this looks super interesting as a transitions of care option, but it generated a lot of questions about is trim sulfa the right agent? Does it have the right dose? And those are all questions that we probably need to do some research on. The second trial that focused on dosing was totally different kind of gear. It was looking at the treatment of drug-resistant TB. This was the Xenix trial. And I'll be perfectly honest, I learned a lot about TB updates when I was putting this talk together. There's been some major, major updates, both in drug-resistant and drug-susceptible TB. So this trial, drug-resistant TB, everybody gets scared and runs the other way and calls mom for help when this uh, comes around, as they should. But the good news is, we have new regimens. Um, in particular, there's the uh, BPAL regimen or BPAL-M regimen. So this is, it stands for bedaquilin pretominid linazolid. So that's the BPAL regimen. And then if it's got BPAL-M, that means you add moxifloxacin as well. They're quickly becoming standard of care for drug-resistant TB, but we've got a problem. Anybody that's going to give months of linazolid should be scared. Uh, with with reason. Um, and in particular, yes, we know it causes myelosuppression, but the big, big issue in the TB population is even more so the peripheral neuropathies that can be permanent in these individuals. So the short version of the Xenix trial, they uh, replaced the standard 1200 milligrams a day of linazolid that they give once a day for these regimens with a low dose 600 milligrams once a day. There's PKPD uh, information to support that. Um, that's honestly another podcast episode in and of itself, but they gave the exact same regimens with either standard dose linazolid or the low dose linazolid for a full 26 weeks. They found comparable, favorable outcomes at 91 to 93% um, and significantly decreased side effects. So we're talking uh, peripheral neuropathy went down by about 10 percentage points and myelosuppression went down by about 20 percentage points. So this is now a new guideline change. So WHO uh, released a rapid communication and they recommend low-dose linazolid as the standard of care for the linazolid containing part of BPAL and BPAL-M regimens in drug-resistant TB.
Very, very cool. Definitely counts as practice changing. Last thing that I'll talk about for bacterial trials is about duration. That's the SHINE trial, um, and it's in the same space of tuberculosis, but this time we're talking about drug-susceptible TB. Many folks that are listening to this pod will be familiar with the relatively new short four-month treatment of pulmonary TB that we have in the form of rivapentine, moxifloxacin, isoniazid, and pyrazinamide. Uh, but we needed something for younger kids. So you can only use that if you're 12 years of age or older and at least 40 kilos. So they did the SHINE trial, and they evaluated shorter four months of treatment compared to the standard six months of treatment for drug-susceptible uh, non-severe pulmonary TB. But the key thing here is that they actually did it not with these fancy new drugs, but with RIPE, your traditional old RIPE therapy. Um, and that's really helpful because internationally, those uh, drugs are going to be cheaper, and three of them are in a fixed dose combination. So that was really cool. And they found that it worked. So four-month uh, regimen had no difference in uh, unfavorable status compared to the standard of care six months. And the WHO now has this as the preferred regimen for a pediatric patient's three months of three months of age to 16 years old with drug susceptible TB. So those are really cool. Um, and that rounds out the ones that I had for bacterial infections. I did mention some investigational agents, but we already covered those. So we can skip that part. Nice. So many guideline changing, practice changing data that we get to talk about, which is really, really exciting. And I think the same is true in the viral space, the non-COVID viral space, mind you. Uh, so every other virus in the world. So Jillian and Rachel, do you guys want to explain to us what the papers that will change your practice in the viral space are? Absolutely. I love non-COVID uh, viruses. We'll talk about them. We've ignored them for a while. I, I also kind of feel like I'm on the rapid round of family feud at the end. So I'm going to try not to talk like an auctioneer, but we will start uh, talking about hepatitis Delta that might not have been on your bingo card for this episode, but here we are. And the MYR301 study. Uh, so we forget about it, but it's the most severe form of viral hepatitis often occurs as a co-infection um, or a super infection with, uh, with hep B. Uh, and when doing the math, actually five to 10% of people with hep B are living also with hep D. Um, we're talking about millions of people worldwide, so not something to, to forget about. Uh, and despite guidance to either screen many or all patients, uh, depending on if you're looking at AASLD guidance or EASL, uh, folks with hep B surface antigen positivity, we actually do uh, respectfully a terrible job at screening these folks with rates between 5 to 13%, depending on the population. So number one thing to take away consider screening for hep D if you have hep B surface antigen positivity in a patient. Other reason to talk about hep D is that we will hopefully soon have therapeutics in this space, so it's something to keep in mind. Uh, so the MYR301 trial was phase three randomized open-label parallel group multi-center study. Uh, patients were randomized to a couple of different dosing forms of bulevertide, Patients were randomized either to no antiviral treatment for the first 48 weeks, followed by daily subcutaneous injections, and then two different dosing schemes within the subcutaneous injections in folks who started right away, either 2 milligrams or 10 milligrams. So kudos to the patients who were doing sub-Q injections every day for all of those weeks. That is a large number of weeks. Uh, when looking at the co-primary endpoint of undetectable hep D RNA and normalization of ALT levels, we did see benefit in the groups uh, that did not delay treatment. So the folks that started right away, 
agent was generally well tolerated. However, in late October, so even since IED week, FDA indicated that it cannot currently approve this drug due to concerns about manufacturing and delivery of the therapy. So in light of this, I say right now, the practice change is to remember to screen folks, hep B surface antigen positive, let's screen for hep D uh, and keep an eye out for future therapeutics in this space. One of the other trials that was talked about was the STOMP trial. This one will be short and sweet. This is a double-blind placebo-controlled trial of ticoviramat for MPOX. I mention this because it is currently ongoing. So if you have a patient with MPOX who you feel can benefit from ticoviramat, please, please, please consider enrolling them in this study, especially because there is an open-label arm. So folks with severe disease, you're nervous about them getting placebo, what have you, there is an option to still enroll them in the study so that we can still understand how to best use this therapy in this disease state. Stomp it out. Remember this study. Next up is Minmon, and then I will turn it over to Rachel. Uh, I think this study is just splendid. So this is a, a phase four open label trial of minimal monitoring, Minmon, during the treatment of hep C with sofosbuvir velpatosphere for 12 weeks. This study is basically like, guys, calm down and stop contacting your patients and making them get labs all of the time is the one-liner. Uh, so this is basically anyone who was willing to be contacted on the telephone uh, and was not pregnant, did not have chronic hep B or decompensated cirrhosis, was allowed in this study. Uh, these patients were not genotyped. They were given all 12 weeks of therapy up front, and then they received two phone calls, one at four weeks into therapy and then the other one at 22 weeks. That's it. We didn't have them get labs while on therapy, two phone calls. Um, and then, of course, they did come in for their SVR 12 labs 12 weeks after completion of therapy. Uh, the cure rates seen in this study were 95%. They're close to what we see in the clinical trials. So these patients did exceptionally well, um, didn't significantly differ among any of the groups where we might feel a little bit more nervous. So folks with cirrhosis, uh, co-infected with HIV, active substance use disorder, or those with genotype 3. Um, they also briefly mentioned the NOW study, which is actually using a van to provide therapy to patients who are in more marginalized populations, so those actively using injectable drugs, um, as well as people who are unhoused, and those patients were doing super well. So overall, just really emphasizes, one, we should be treating folks with hep C really across the board. Two, while some folks absolutely are going to require more support from us, a lot of them will do just fine without us bothering them and making them get labs along the way. Um, and this approach is actually supported by the simplified section of the treatment guidelines. You do not need to have on-treatment laboratory monitoring, um, and I think that this can make us feel a lot better about that. One funny note that I will note from the Q&A, uh, someone asked if they thought that this was going to move the needle towards a primary care provider being able to treat hep C. Uh, and the speaker said, if you can treat H. pylori, you can probably treat hep C. And I think all of us can agree that's probably true. Um, so those are, are the first three. Rachel, take it away for the last couple. Thanks, Jillian. Mine's going to take on more of a nautical cruise vibe. I'm going to talk about Anchor and Cabo Tiger Beer. The Anchor study focused on screening for and treatment of HPV and prevention of anal cancer in HIV patients. They looked at male and female patients 35 years and older with HIV and biopsy-proven high-grade squamous cell intraepithelial lesions, known as HCIL, and randomized them to receive treatment for those lesions followed by monitoring or active monitoring alone, and they looked at an outcome of anal cancer rate. 
they found that treatment of H-cell led to a 57% reduction in the anal cancer rate, which was pretty impressive, but note that the absolute rates were low, 1.8% versus 0.9%. From this, they concluded that H-cell treatment should be prioritized in men and women living with HIV regardless of sexual behavior, but this can be tough to implement because of access issues to high-resolution endoscopy or HRA, uh, that some locations face, and also limitations of pap smears for diagnosis of these. So there's still work to be done on optimizing screening algorithms and resource-limited settings, but something that we can all do is encourage HPV vaccination, even up to patients aged 45 years, in some cases, uh, to prevent anal cancer since it's a vaccine-preventable disease, and we have safe and effective vaccines for that. And there were quite a few studies for Cabo, and the first two were about PrEP, the 083 trial and HPTN084. So 083 looked at men and transgender women with increased HIV risk, while HPTN084 looked at cisgender women with increased HIV risk. But basically, the patients received standard of care daily Truvada, or one month of oral, then switched to injectable Capotegravir every two months. The results for these were pretty impressive. In um, 083, they found a 66% reduced risk of HIV infection versus standard of care in very rare integrase inhibitor resistance and breakthrough infections, only seven out of 2,244 patients. And then in the partner trial in cisgender women, they saw 89% reduced risk of HIV infection and no integrase inhibitor resistance. So that was pretty encouraging for using these long-acting injectable or this long-acting injectable for PrEP. The next one they prevent, uh, presented was Cabo as treatment in combination with Ropivirine. So they talked about the Atlas 2M study first, which looked at uh, Cabo Ropivirine every four weeks versus every eight weeks. And this expanded on what had previously been published with giving data for up to a three-year period. So they did meet their non-inferiority margin with 85% or greater virologic suppression in both arms. They had some confirmed failures, but they were relatively low only 13 cases in thousands of patients. But more failures happened in the eight-week group, and when they failed, they failed early and developed resistance mutations to both cabotegravir and ropivirine. Some of those risk factors for resistance development were people who had pre-existing ropivirine resistance mutations, so you should get a good history on your patient and not start those uh, if they have that, uh, and also obesity. The second trial they talked about for treatment was more of a, a real-world setting trial done in San Francisco, and this was done in 51 patients in an urban public health HIV clinic. Patients there to be enrolled couldn't have had ropivirine mutations or more than one integrase inhibitor mutation. 24 patients at enrollment were already virologically suppressed, and they remained suppressed and undetectable for the whole study period. 15 patients started with detectable viremia, which I think has been an area that people are unsure about with these long-acting injectables, uh, and they had a median CD4 of 100, uh, but they had close supervision with their injections, and 12 of these patients got to an undetectable viral load. Three of them had a two-log decline, which they stopped there for publication time, but now uh, the the they said that they are doing very well as well. And something they wanted to highlight is that two of those patients have never previously been suppressed ever in more than 10 years of living with HIV. So the, these long-acting injectables, while not for everyone, definitely are exciting because they expand our options for the treatment of HIV and even for PrEP, and they can really change some patients' lives. So we're going to have some challenges with how to best um, structure it for screening, administration, monitoring, and counseling. But overall, I think uh, it looks pretty positive. The horizon looks pretty positive for these.
Yes, Jillian and Rachel, absolutely. Julie and I were talking about a patient in that regard, even just today, that's on that drug. So this is very cool work in the antiviral space and all hail hep D. Admittedly, not something I routinely think about, but I walked away from that session with a lot of respect for hep D and learned a lot of new content. That speaker really did an exceptional job. So to round out the papers that should change your practice, now we're focusing on the antifungal space. Our colleague and friend, Dr. Kayla Stover, presented on antifungal trials, and she had a challenging job here because fungal infections are rare, and fungal trials are quite challenging to enroll because of that. She spent a good chunk of the talk talking about the pipeline agents in the antifungal space, which are just flourishing, which is really exciting. And our listeners can hear Kayla herself talk about these on Breakpoints episode 64, which was published a few months ago. It's titled, Putting the Fun in Fungi, a Fun Guide, if you will, to New Antifungals. And so rather than recap that today, you guys can go back and listen to that. Kayla and Dr. Nathan Wiederhold are exceptional on that episode. They walk through all these new pipeline agents and everything you need to know about antifungal testing. So go ahead and check that out. What I'm going to do today for these trials is summarize the three clinical trials that Kayla talked about. And so the first one was the results of the Candicept trial, which is looking at beta-D-glucan guided antifungal therapy. This was published in July of 2022 in Intensive Care Medicine. And the theme of this trial and one other trial that Kayla brought up in this session is that the fungal biomarkers of beta-D-glucan and then even galactamanin to a degree continually show us in the literature that their negative predictive value is awesome. So if the test is negative, if your beta-D-glucan is negative, you can feel pretty confident that that patient does not have a fungal infection. But if it's positive, especially in our critically ill patients, it really just doesn't tell us much of anything. And so it's a tricky tricky test. You definitely have to send it only if you know how to interpret it. And I think that's what this trial showed us. So the goal of this trial, of the Candicept trial, was to investigate whether beta-D-glucan guidance shortened the time to antifungal therapy. So can I get my patient with a fungal infection on antifungals faster, which would be, in theory, a good thing? And would that then reduce mortality of sepsis in patients that are at high risk of invasive candidiasis? So a fair hypothesis. This was a multi-center randomized controlled trial between September 2016 through September 2019. They enrolled in 18 ICUs, adult patients only, and they only enrolled patients that had sepsis and had an increased risk of an invasive fungal infection. So that would be risk factors like being on TPN, having received broad-spectrum antibiotics for more than 48 hours, previously receiving renal replacement therapy of any kind, or having gastrointestinal surgery within the past seven days. So these are really consistent with the published risk factors for candidiasis. These are things I think we're all familiar with in our ICUs. They enrolled to 339 patients. They did exclude immunosuppressed patients, which is interesting. They would be at even higher risk. And so what we're really looking at is this question we're challenged with, like, especially in things like our trauma ICUs, these are relatively healthy patients otherwise, but then they're in the ICU with sepsis, septic shock, should we give them empiric antifungals? So the patients in the control group received targeted antifungal therapy driven only by culture results, whereas the patients in the beta-D-glucan group had a beta-D-glucan level drawn within one hour of randomization into the trial along with blood cultures. Any positive value, which they define in the study as greater than or equal to 80 picograms per milliliter, which different labs have different 
threshold. So you do need to know what your lab assay is, although this is the threshold consistent with the package insert. So if it was greater than or equal to 80, 80 they should start antifungal therapy. And then if the blood cultures come back negative, which usually take a few days, then they would discontinue antifungals. And in general, empiric antifungal use was discouraged in both groups. So it was only started earlier in the beta D-glucan group if that value was positive. And what they found is that the beta D-glucan group did in fact receive way more antifungals. Almost 50% of them received antifungal therapy compared to only 6% in the control group. And the time to antifungal therapy was much improved in the beta D-glucan group. It was started in about 1.1 days, whereas in the culture-guided group, antifungals were started in 4.4 days. But this made no difference in clinical outcomes. So the primary endpoint was 28-day mortality. There was no difference. There was no difference in length of stay. Mortality was actually numerically higher in the beta-D-glucan group, 33.7% versus 30.5%. And overall, the rate of IFI and true candidiasis was only 14%. And also 30% of the patients in the beta-D-glucan group didn't receive any antifungals at all. And so Again, the take-home of this trial is that beta-D-glucan monitoring really is not awesome if it's positive. If it's negative, we can feel pretty good about stopping antifungals. If it's positive, it really doesn't help us guide if that patient truly has an IFI or not. IFI rates are very low, even in patients with sepsis and risk factors. Um, but if you do have an infection, in general, it's good to be on antimicrobials faster and they got patients on antifungals faster, but they basically gave 74 patients antifungal therapy that didn't need it, and it overall had no benefit. And so I don't think we'd recommend beta-D-glucan monitoring. The next study also looked at biomarkers, this time in PEDS. So our PEDS friends out there, I know we don't talk about PEDS trials as much as we probably should. PEDS are great. Hi to all my PEDS ID friends. Um, so this trial was by Fisher and colleagues. It was published in the Journal of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the end of 2021. And they looked at prospective galactamannan and beta-D-glucan assays as diagnostic tools for invasive fungal disease in PEDS that with AML that were receiving fungal prophylaxis. So all of the kids in this trial were on standard caspofungin or fluconazole per routine care for patients undergoing AML induction therapy. So this is interesting. So prospective observational randomized trial. And what the intervention was, was again, you have these kids, they're getting chemo, they're on their profi antifungal standard care. The intervention was whether or not they should also get twice weekly blood samples from when they completed their chemotherapy until their ANC recovered doing these beta-D-glucan and galactamannan assays. What they found, again, negative predictive value, awesome, greater than 99%. If these are negative, you probably don't have an IFI. But they actually found there were no true positives, only false positives. And so the sensitivity and the positive predictive value for each of these assays was, drum roll, 0%. So their conclusion is that these assays should not be used and that this biomarker surveillance should in fact be discouraged. And so I think that's good. I mean, it's always good to have concrete data to show that we should stop doing unnecessary things. And then last but not least, these were global guideline changing, practice changing data. Absolutely. I think our audience is probably familiar with this trial, but the ambition trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in March of 2022. This was single-dose liposomal amphotericin followed by flucytosine and fluconazole for patients with cryptococcus meningitis. 
they looked at 10 mix per cake of liposomal amphotericin one time and then giving fluke and flucytosine for 14 days compared to the standard of care, which is currently seven days of fluconazole, flucytosine, and then amphotericin deoxycholate combined. So seven days of all three of those. The mortality at 10 weeks in the 10 mg per cake once liposomal amphotericin group was statistically lower than the deoxycholate group, and there were more adverse events in the deoxycholate group. So this did lead to the WHO updating the cryptococcal meningitis guidelines in April of 22. So absolutely practice changing data. Which brings us to Breakpoints Faithful, our favorite part of the podcast, the I Feel Nerdy section. So I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place and a closing segment for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. For today's I Feel Nerdy, we are going Midnight's Edition. So, and I can't even take credit for this. This was all Jillian's idea. But we will be sharing something so very nerdy that it keeps us up at midnight. And related, we are also going to share our favorite song on Taylor Swift's new internet-breaking album, Midnight's. Whether you like her or not, you cannot deny that this has been culturally relevant, and therefore, we will cover it. So, Jillian, I will have you go first. I feel like now would be a good time for me to say, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. And I am the reason we are doing this Midnight's themed. Um, okay, I will start with the real stuff and then get to arguably the important stuff. Anyway, uh, in terms of the thing that just continually blows my mind, Dr. Kim Blumenthal had some fascinating slides on the nocebo response. Uh, so this is in the setting of, of evaluating patients for beta-lactam allergy. Uh, and the definition is very fancy. It makes me want to kind of read it in a British accent, but none of you asked for that. Uh, it's the onset of an untoward reaction following the administration of an indifferent substance. Uh, so this is, uh, again, discussed in the setting of oral challenges to beta-lactams. And what they're finding is that when we give folks uh, oral challenges, uh, a certain percentage of them will actually react to placebo. These are objective, measurable responses that patients are having when they are not administered an active substance. So I think it really just speaks to uh, the power of the mind-body connection, gives me some renewed respect for that. Um, and some of these patients actually even benefit from placebo challenges, uh, which is really wild. So uh, I think that that was something that uh, definitely caught my attention. Okay, now as far as T-Swift goes, I will rein it in, I promise. Mastermind is my favorite song. It was a sneaky one. I saw Glennon Doyle talking about it on Twitter, and I was like, hmm, I don't know that that one really caught my eye the first time through. However, I listened to it thrice, and then I was like, this is it. It's the best one, and it's not even close. I have about 98% of a really, really awesome tango routine choreographed to it. So remember, text Jillian to 21523 whenever that time comes. That said... <laughs> My Spotify wrapped data, which I got yesterday, <laughs> would tell you that question is actually my favorite, which caught me by surprise. And it's a banger. Don't get me wrong. But I was like, wait, what? So mastermind is my answer. But apparently question you're on your own kid and Paris, which all have three very different vibes, but they're all exceptional are my honorable mentions. I appreciate the strong stance on mastermind. It's a good one. And I, I'll come back to you guys, but I, I honestly think the transition from midnight rain to questions is hand down, hands down the best of the album. And I also strongly feel the album should be listened to in order. And with that, Rachel. So what keeps me up at night is pretty generic and maybe a bit morbid and it's not necessarily specific to ID, but it certainly does happen in ID, but um, and not to bring us on a downer, but, you know, I think about all the things that we currently do now as standard practice or even just often practice that we're going to find out later was actually harmful to people. 
because we have a ton of examples of that in history and in ID, we have a couple examples. And so to me, that just bothers me because it's something that you can't really have control over. The best you can do is go out there, get motivated, find an issue, do those clinical trials, you know, shout out to all you, um, all you people listening in the audience who have such a strong desire to do that. We're all for it. Encourage you to do that. But that's what really, I'm not too much of a philosophical person, honestly, but that's something that I think about a lot. Like, what am I going to look back on in 10 years and think, I can't believe we used to do that all the time as standards. So anyway, to bring it back up, my favorite song um, on Midnight's is probably Antihero, just because I'm pretty basic, you guys. And also, I'm not a true Swifty. I can't identify as one. I have not earned the right. I do listen to her music and I like it, but I don't really know anything about the secret theories or whatever but that one I saw the music video and I just thought it was so amazing and well done and it just gets stuck in my head and also if anybody out here watches the show you with Penn Badgley and you saw his first mimic of the music video just as his character it just it blew my mind it was truly amazing and that made anti-hero the favorite for me Rachel, I got to admit, I'm, I'm also an imposter here. I don't feel like I'm a true Swifty either. Although I will say I have a whole new appreciation for her songwriting abilities in part due to our group text. So thank you all for educating me and cueing me into what I was missing. Um, in terms of what keeps me up at midnight, I got to be honest, it's that interplay between antimicrobial killing and the immune system. I am flabbergasted that like a century after discovering antimicrobials, we still, I don't know, it still feels like I know nothing about immunology. I think it's the hardest part of medicine. And I am always floored. Um, I did a recent talk on, on E. coli and I was uh, stuck with talking about different serotypes and uh, I, I, I dipped a toe into uh, opsonophagocytosis. I can't even say that word. Um, and all like complement killing and all these things on the surface of the E. coli. And I was like, whoa, this is a lot. We don't really know how this is all happening. And I feel like we are over here playing with like one little bolt and like the whole machine is staring at us going, ha you think you're going to cure this infection. So that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night uh, by far of, of everything we've talked about, like ABX01 that, um, that we went through, I think is fascinating. And I'm like, yes, more of this. Give me all the glycans. And I can't even remember all the words that, that Aaron said, but those things keep me up, which I guess is like, I'm looking forward, Rachel, you're looking back. So between the two of us, like we got it covered, right? In terms of looking at the field of ID. Um, so in switching to the Midnight's album, I, I'll be honest, I, I struggle to make it all the way through to the end. I love Mastermind, but I struggle to make it through the end because like I keep playing Lavender Haze, like on repeat. I love that song. I don't know if it's like the groovy falsetto, the driving drumbeat. These are all things I love. And then when I listen to the lyrics, she's like pushing back on that 1950s bleep, right, that they want from her. And I'm like, oh, I can vibe with this. So I totally get behind this woman's desire to like define herself and her relationships, be they romantic or otherwise. Um, I'm here for that. And, and I love that empowerment. So yeah, I want more tools in my toolbox. I want to define how I treat uh, patients with infections as well. So that's how I'll wrap it up. Erin, I turf it to you. 
I co-sign all of that. The first three songs are so good because Maroon is very good, but my, so Glitch is honestly the sleeper pick for me. Like, I think it's so good. And I, the first time I heard it, it kind of fell under my radar too. And then like my eighth listen through, I was like, this is the best song here. Like, and it's such an underappreciated one because it's at the end and it's on the 3 a.m. edition. So it gets complicated, you know, which Which credit to this group. Because I didn't know there was a 3 a.m. edition oh, for yeah, many I days. Jillian, I think I knew before you did. <laughs> I remember that. I was like, what rock do you live under? You know more about immunophenotyping, which is my cool thing for my D week. Well, I have two. I'm cheating. Sorry, but it was <laughs> so cool. Okay. So immunophenotyping um, in long COVID was a presentation given in one of the night symposia um, by David Petrino, who is a PhD that does rehab at Mount Sinai. And his presentation is really fascinating. His lab actually has a Twitter, so I encourage everyone to follow his work. But he went through one of their most recent studies that's only available on Med Archive right now. But they look at patients with long COVID that go to rehab centers and they do all kinds of immunophenotyping. So, Julie, to your point, I think the role of immuno- immunology is just so fascinating. And what they found, punchline of some of his more prominent graphics in this publication is that patients with long COVID have significantly elevated portions of activated T-cells, implying that there is some kind of ongoing viral replication in which your T-cells are trying to fight this virus. So to all the people that I initially scoffed at that were like, we should give Paxlovid for long COVID, I'm sorry, because perhaps there's something there if we're seeing this T-cell signal. That's really interesting. They also are more likely to show recent reactivation of herpes viruses like EBV, And then last but not least, they have significantly reduced morning cortisol, which at first you might be like, why? That's odd. I don't understand it. And I didn't either until I watched this other session, which is the other coolest thing I learned at this conference. And so this other session that was on Thursday morning, I think, was called Circadian Clocks, Hormones, and Host Defenses Against Infections. And I want to give credit to Zara Kasamali Escobar, who pointed this session out to me because she carried around the printed notebook that they opt you have to opt into somehow I didn't even know that but we're like two 80 year olds we're I think we're the only people that opted in for that you are the only two people that had a print copy of the program but thank god you did because that's how she found this session and it was so fascinating so there were three speakers I'm only going to talk about one um, but one was about sex differences in immunity one was about how estrogen and androgen receptors can regulate your immunity, which is again, just fascinating stuff. But what I want to get into is the circadian control of viral infections, particularly in lung models. So I could talk about this for 15 hours, but at the end of the day, so circadian is Latin for approximately a day. And it's all about these natural rhythms in organisms from the simplest of organisms to homo sapiens and how you use circadian rhythms to adapt to your environment. And traditionally, circadian rhythm had a very neurocentric view, wherein scientists thought that the brain harbored this master regulator that dictated everything. And in the past couple of decades, there's been a lot of dramatic work in this field that has evolved to show that, yeah, the suprachiasmic nucleus in the brain is a regulatory control center, and it's very important. But ultimately, we have these tiny clocks and times and rhythms and genes all throughout our body, all throughout our cells. And the brain helps synchronize all of those clocks. But the speaker literally referred to it as saying you have a liver clock and the liver clock has to agree with your, you know, muscle clock and things like this. And if they get out of sync, then that's when you can be more vulnerable to certain disease conditions. And I just think as a collective whole, this is so fascinating. So you have to go and watch this, but they talked a lot about 
truly sunshine makes you better because the value of light and how light regulates different genes and different cells in your transcriptome is really important. And up to 40% of the human genome and the human transcriptome is under circadian regulation. And when you get infected with any kind of infection, but particularly viral infections that causes your circadian rhythm to go out of whack. And we are humans, right? A lot of us are in medicine. Like our circadian rhythms are consistently interrupted, whether it be due to work, due to stress, due to daylight savings time. Um, And it's just really, really, really cool. And so to summarize decades of incredible research into like two sentences, which I feel like is doing such a disservice. So if the author of these data are listening, I apologize that I've summarized all of your life work and the coolest things into two seconds. However, um, what they basically did was they looked at mice and they looked at different infection models in mice. And if you get infected with influenza in the morning, you have a three times better survival rate than getting infected at night. And that all goes into this whole concept of how circadian control is so, so important. And so they ended with saying that the importance of being on time is universal, right? You want to be on time and everything you do to be a good person, but also to have better clinical outcomes. And then they made a joke that there's no time of day to get infected. That's a good time to get infected. But if you're going to get infected, it seems like you at least want to get influenza in the morning. And then they're just, you know, expanding this work all over. And so um, one of my favorite like teen romance movies and books has this quote in it that says sleep cures cancer. And I think we all appreciate the value of sleep. And it's true. It really does regulate your genes better and lead to better health outcomes. And so sunshine and sleep and a schedule are important. And so to everyone who is into those things, you are correct. Um, And I I just think overall, again, immunophenotyping, the role of all these things, just fascinating, just fascinating stuff. And with that, you guys, we have come to the end of our, our 2022 recap. So it is one of the biggest honors and privileges of my life to host this podcast with you amazing women. And so thank you so much for joining me today and close out our, the 2022 year. You, our audience are a huge part of what we do and we couldn't do this without you. So thank you as always for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. This episode today was co-hosted by all your Breakpoints hosts. So I am Erin McCreary and I'm here with Julianne Justo, Rachel Britt and Jillian Hayes. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, myself, and our good friend, Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Jillian and Jeanette Bouchard. It was edited by Zach Nelson, Taylor Horry, and Weanna Brook. Our production team includes Veronica Zafont and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.